This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat, an independent international collective of researchers, investigators, and citizen journalists who use open source and social media investigation to probe all kinds of subjects, from crimes against humanity to the trafficking and use of chemical weapons. Combining advanced technology, forensic research, journalism, investigations, transparency, and accountability in one place. Sarah Jacobs is a member of Congress from California who sits on the House Foreign Affairs and Armed Services Committees, and she just came back from Brussels. We talked to both of them about what's happening right now in Ukraine, as well as a lot of other interesting things. But first, a quick message from Justin. Hey, Politics and Media 101 listeners. We want to tell you about Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. In this midterm year, they'll bring you conversations that can truly support your decision-making beyond the horse race. Join host Myla Atmos every Thursday for in-depth conversations with citizen changemakers about how they're building their civic action toolkits. You'll learn something new and come away with hope and inspiration to bolster our democracy. Follow Future Hindsight wherever you listen to podcasts or tune in on futurehindsight.com. Before we get into our conversation with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, let's go first to our conversation with Elliot from Bellingcat about what's happening in Ukraine and roll the tape. So, Mr. Higgins, I wanted to get into first, what is Bellingcat and what is your book, We Are Bellingcat? So Bellingcat is an organization I founded eight years ago after a couple of years of blogging, which I'd been doing first as a hobby for my own entertainment, and then it turned into something more serious. And there I was looking at open source videos, so publicly available videos on places like YouTube and Facebook from the conflict in Syria, and actually analyzing what those videos were showing. And it's something we now call online open source investigation, and it's expanded quite a bit, especially from 2014 onwards, as Bellingcat was launched just after Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. So that investigation kind of became the catalyst, both for kind of the growth of Bellingcat, but also the broader growth of the online open source investigation movement. So it went from something that was being done pretty much by amateurs and the odd professional here and there in their spare time to kind of now where... You know, we're working with a whole range of international bodies. We, we're working on issues around justice and accountability using open source evidence at places like the International Criminal Court. We investigate a wide range of topics. And one thing we focus on in particular, more because it's part of our verification process, is identifying disinformation and misinformation. And I think certainly with the current conflicts with Ukraine or the building up to the conflict of Ukraine, we're seeing that kind of information coming out again. Elliot, could you tell us how the name Bellingcat came about? What's the origin of the of the title of your project? So Bellingcat came from a the name itself comes from a fable called Belling the Cat. It's about a group of mice who are very frightened of a large, dangerous cat. And the group kind of has a meeting, all the mice come together, and they decide among themselves that they're going to put a bell on the cat's neck. But then they realize they don't really have a plan to do that, and they don't have any volunteers to challenge this big, scary cat. So in a way, what we're doing is teaching people how to bell the cat. And the projects that you do using these open sources to try to collect information, 
often you're using satellites, you're using information that can be found on the internet. Do you view this as a completely novel kind of work, or is there a precedent for this in the analog era? I mean, really, it's about using publicly available sources of information that's been done for many years. What's different is uh, since about 2007, we've had a real dramatic change in the amount of digital information there is and how accessible that information is to just ordinary members of the public. So on kind of one side, I think thanks to the rise of smartphone technology, especially since the rise of um, kind of the iPhone in 2007, you have then had the development of social media sharing apps and more and more photographs, videos and other information being shared online. I mean, vast quantities of it. And alongside that, you've also had the growth of platforms like Google Earth and Google Street View, which should provide kind of reference imagery, you know, making satellite imagery available to people anywhere in the world, whilst before that was something very much limited to the intelligence services. So those kind of two trends, I think, have combined around the time of the Arab Spring in particular in 2011 to give us a much better understanding of what's happening in places that are far away. So it's kind of like a whole kind of almost a field of investigation kind of being developed. It's kind of felt like building the kind of train tracks as you've been on the train quite a bit, but this entire field has kind of really developed from 2011 onwards. Generally, when we're looking at kind of incidents, particularly in conflicts, we're looking to gather as much of the publicly available information that's kind of generated from the incident. So say you have an airstrike in Yemen, you'll have people on the ground who might be documenting it with mobile phones, they'll be filming the aftermath. We'll look for that, we'll search through social media channels and collect as much of that as possible. You might have news crews on the ground who are filming stuff, you might have other sources that are providing information. We then will be looking at all that visual information, trying to turn that into a timeline of events. And we can do that, first of all, by a process called geolocation, where we use satellite imagery to confirm the location where things were filmed. So we're looking at features that are visible in the video that's also visible in satellite imagery or other area. Once we have it geolocated and we know where it was filmed, we can look at things, for example, like the position of shadows. Because once you know the camera position and the direction of the shadows, you can actually use that to tell the time. And it's possible to put things into sequence and also look at other clues in the videos, like the movements of objects or where people are stood. And you can actually piece together a kind of timeline of events as they unfold. And you also look at the claims being made by witnesses, the version of events being put out by the various sides of the conflict. And from that, you can start getting a sense of which side's version of events is close to, to what you're actually seeing in these videos. And generally, when you're dealing with conflict events where there's two sides, particularly in conflicts where the sides really don't like each other, like you've seen in kind of Yemen and Syria and elsewhere, you'll see you know one side almost certainly lying about what happened. They'll like be denying everything or saying, oh, it wasn't us. And then when you actually look through the open source evidence and piece it together, one version of events become a lot clearer than another. So if someone was watching Russian language media right now, if someone was watching Russia Today or Russia One, what's the narrative that they would be seeing? Broadly speaking, the kind of Russian angle is basically the Ukrainian government basically wants to ethnically cleanse the separatist held territory of ethnic Russians who are living there. And a couple of days ago, we had this kind of performance where the authorities in the Donetsk People's Republic, which is one of the two separatist areas, claimed there was going to be this kind of massive kind of invasion that lots of people were going to die. And they started evacuating people from Donetsk, putting them on buses and driving them across the border into Russia, where they were filmed and 
photographed as poor refugees coming from this crisis. It was a manufactured crisis, but those images are then shown on Russian TV without that context, saying, oh, look, here's refugees coming from Ukraine where the evil Ukrainian authorities are trying to ethnically cleanse, and these refugees are evidence that that's happening. But, you know, the whole thing is arranged by the actual separatist authorities. And time and time again, you see this happening. And one thing that was very interesting about that incident is there were two video messages published by the head of the Luhansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic, the two separatist areas, where they spoke about it being February 18th and that today they have to evacuate people. But again, they posted this on Telegram where the metadata was visible and both of the videos were filmed on February 16th, two days before the evacuation and the escalation that they referred to took place on February 17th. So they were recording something on the 16th talking about events that were occurring two days in the future which is a pretty good sign that this stuff was kind of organized beforehand and they had prepared this material for another disinformation op and you're seeing this time and time again and it was quite if you actually follow this stuff it's surprisingly relentless how much of this stuff is going out so just to be clear then if you're watching the Russian media, you are hearing about a refugee crisis out of Donetsk, and you're seeing people being moved from Donetsk into Russia, and that this was, in actuality, sort of a forced evacuation. That's correct? Yeah, and if you're in Russia, you aren't seeing an independent version of events. You're seeing the version of events that's being filmed by news crews that are working for state media channels that are 100% in with what? the Kremlin is trying to do in Ukraine. And it's one kind of thing after another. I mean, Russia is sat on the border poised to invade any moment. And we're to believe that the Ukrainians have taken this moment to up the amount of kind of cross-border artillery attacks they're doing and other kinds of violence. And now you're seeing these claims that Ukraine has been firing rockets into Russia that always seem to hit empty buildings and they only ever seem to be one or two rockets. So it, it's all, it, it's very clearly their attempt to kind of manufacture this crisis. And if you're in Russia, you're being served all the videos that are kind of produced from these kind of manufactured incidents. So then this evacuation of Donetsk, it's not allegedly being precipitated by a single attack. It's a disperse array of claimed attacks. There's maybe five, six, seven attacks that they're claiming have spurned on this evacuation. Yeah, so it appears that on the 16th, there was an attempt to provoke Ukrainian forces because there was a big, there's been a big uptick in the amount of artillery attacks being documented coming from the separatist side into the Ukrainian side. And it appears to be an attempt to kind of provoke a reaction. Alongside that, you've got basically propaganda being published by the separatists and um, by Russia that are constantly reporting on all these different attacks, these incidents. One thing they like to do is fire artillery near these cities and out of the cities. But then you have people on the ground recording all these explosions as the artillery is being fired. And if you're familiar with what artillery sounds like when it's being fired, you can tell it's outgoing fire. But of course, it's then recycled onto kind of propaganda channels to say, oh, look at all these explosions happening in the town. Of course, they don't ever find the scenes of where these supposed explosions actually happened in the town because they're not happening there. But that's kind of not the point. And you have to understand as well with this kind of disinformation, it's not about crafting one narrative kind of carefully. It's about taking everything you've got and just flinging it at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's why I think you see so much kind of low quality propaganda coming out, because it's not about the quality of the propaganda, it's about the volume of it. It's that you're being completely assaulted by this idea that something's bad ha is happening in Ukraine. And before you start worrying about one piece of propaganda, you're on to the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. And you've got that message 
been constantly being reinforced to Russian audiences that this crisis is happening. There is this kind of situation unfolding in Ukraine and that Russia has to get involved to stop these poor ethnic Russians getting ethnically cleansed by the Ukrainian government. But it's a fabrication. It's been created as an excuse to invade. With organizations like Bellingcat, and you mentioned New York Times using open source information, is Russia even trying to deceive the people at the international level for the cause of war in this potential conflict? Or is it just purely like you said, they're just trying to confuse people by throwing as much information out there as possible? Well, I think we can look at what the UN did at the Russia did at the UN recently, where they um, came with a report that they claimed demonstrated their evidence that there was this kind of genocide happening in separatist held areas. And the sources for this report were nearly entirely Russia Today articles. So they were using their own state media to justify their reason for attack, and they presented this to the UN. That, for me, either reflects they aren't being taking this very seriously they're just kind of going through the motions because i mean that's like a real doing your kind of coursework in the last day of term kind of move so that's just like you know lazy and i just don't i think at that level they just actually don't care they're looking for like the tiniest little fig leaf to cover what they're doing i think what will become interesting is when there starts being serious incidents of say war crimes following the invasion because having followed russia and their activities in ukraine and syria for a while there's going to be some sort of war crime happening at some point or another probably quite a lot of them so what's going to happen then is you are going to have these kind of on the ground you know witnesses to this recording it sharing it online and there, I think we have to be very quick about kind of establishing the facts based off the available open source evidence. Because in my experience, anytime there's an incident like that, that kind of Russian propaganda starts coming out. They start lying about, you know, what's happened, who's been affected. A trick of theirs as well is to produce aerial or satellite imagery that they use to claim something didn't happen. But then you discover that the imagery is showing a different location. It was dated from before the attack happened. And they've done this multiple times in the past with Syria. So I really wouldn't be surprised if it happens again. But that kind of documentation of those war crimes using open source evidence is going to be something I think that's quite important because that makes it a lot more difficult for Russia to kind of get away with this stuff now. Observers have long suspected that Russia bombs hospitals, but no one has been able to prove it. Until now. The Times has assembled a large body of evidence from multiple sources that directly implicates Russia in four hospital attacks in just 12 hours. We collected four main types of evidence. First, flight logs, which tell us where and when the Russian Air Force was flying. Second, thousands of recordings of those radio transmissions as Russian pilots operating the skies above northwest Syria. Third, we analyzed hours of videos of these strikes, which gave us clues about the type of weapons used. We reviewed that footage with experts on the Russian Air Force. And fourth, we established the time these attacks happened by interviewing medics, obtaining incident reports, and examining social media postings. Our detailed findings show how Russia repeatedly violated one of the oldest laws of war. What are some of the worst war crimes that you've been able to verify at the hands of Russia? And then the second part of this question is, are committing these atrocities and war crimes part of their tactics and strategy when they are in war? And if so, what do you think the end goal would be of these tactics? 
So, I mean, with MH17, I mean, that was probably the biggest one we did. So there they shot down an airliner that had 298 people on board. Um, from uh, videos and photographs shared online and information that people were publishing, you know, it, during the moment, we were able to establish first the route of the missile launcher through separatist-held Ukraine um, on the day the, the shootdown happened. The site the missile was launched from, because there was were witnesses who were posting that they'd just seen a missile launch from a field, a smoke trail photograph of coming from this field and other information. Um, we then were able to find um, uh, photographs and videos of a convoy in Russia that showed um, movements of one particular convoy of uh, which carried a lot of book missile launchers, basically to the convoy videos you're seeing at the moment. But using all those videos, we were able to piece together the route of that convoy. And one of those missile launchers had markings and damage and other features that were uniquely identical to the one that was in Ukraine on the day MH17 was shot down. So that established it was the same missile launcher. And we were able to track that missile launcher back to its base and identify which specific military base it had come from. And this is all the information now at the um, MH17 trial in uh, the Netherlands, where four people have been charged um, with, with shooting down MH17, being involved with the shootout. That's now part of the kind of case that's being built against them. So that's kind of like one example. We've also looked into poisoning of uh, Sergei Skripal, this former Russian spy who defected to the UK, who was poisoned in Salisbury in 2018. There we are able to establish the real identities of the two suspects, and they were GRU officers. From that, we are there able to connect them to other GRU officers who had been involved in another poisoning in Bulgaria a couple of years earlier. That led us then to the secret chemical weapons program that Russia had, who, who were responsible for producing these nerve agents. And that then allowed us to identify the FSB team, the Russian Domestic Intelligence Service team, involved with the poisoning of Alexei Navalny in uh, late 2020. And that then led us to find even more poisonings by the, the same FSB team of various Russian opposition figures. And this was all based off leaked data from the Russian government, where, because in Russia, basically everything's for sale because the government's corrupt. Everyone in the government from the top to the bottom has a level of corruption and they will happily sell data that's from government servers, phone records, house registrations, all kinds of data that we acquired and started to use to piece together the real identities of these poisoners and using their phone records to see who they were calling and, you know, which, you know, chemical weapon scientists they've been calling just before the assassinations. Elliot, I want to move on to another aspect of this. So as you described, Part of how you started out in this kind of work was identifying weapons, using satellite imagery to find the movement of soldiers, to find weapons, to identify them. I think that this is incredibly relevant to current events because so much of our assessment job is to try to figure out where the Russian troops are and what kind of weapons they're compiling at the border. So about five days ago, Russia claimed that they were moving troops away from the Crimean Peninsula, that these troops that had been moved to Crimea recently are moving back to their bases in Dagestan and North Ossetia, parts of Russia, the home base for these soldiers. But the USA said that this claim was false, that the troops were not moving out of Crimea, as Russia had claimed. So in your work, looking at satellites, have you been able to determine who's telling the truth here, whether those troops have moved away from Crimea or whether they've remained? Well, one thing we've been doing is um, working with a couple of organizations who've been gathering pretty much every single video that's been shared online showing these various 
trooper movements, and there are vast numbers of them, you know, especially on TikTok, for example. Loads and loads of these videos being filmed all the time. And it's possible to locate where they were filmed and which direction these vehicles are going. And the vast majority of these are going towards the Russian border. It's died down recently, but that seems because most of the stuff's already in position to do what they want to do. It really does seem that they're building towards something rather than kind of moving away from it at the moment. And looking at the specific weapons that, uh, that you've been able to, to identify them carrying as they've aligned across the various borders with Ukraine. Does that tell you anything about what they might be planning? Are we able to look at some of the specific items that they've got lined up on the border to say they might be planning a missile attack, they might be planning a tank invasion, and so on? My reading of it at the moment is that they're trying to do a lightning strike onto to Kiev and trying basically decapitate the government and install a puppet government as quickly as possible. Because some of the assessments I've been reading says they haven't really built up the army in a way that will give them the ability to have a sustained conflict. And it looks like they're trying to go for kind of this lightning strike. Whether or not that will work is a different question. So Russia may find it in a lot of trouble. But I, I think it would be a big problem that if Russia could in a couple of days, take over an entire country, because it would make every other country where there's a frozen conflict involving Russia very, very nervous. Um, and the re reaction from the Europeans and the US to that would have to be extremely strong to you know, discourage Putin from doing it again. So, you know, worst case scenario is they make that kind of lightning strike. And as for specific units, I mean, there's everything there. There's artillery, there's tanks, they've got everything out there. There's attack aircraft, um, you know, I mean, there's over 100,000, you know, troops out there. It, it's everything. Short of the news. So um, as, as we're assessing this, then, if, while we're trying to identify the weaponry that they've got, we're using these open source um, information centers to try to determine this, the satellite pictures and the videos and images that we've got. Are there big blind spots? Are there areas where we don't know exactly what they've got? Things that you wish that you could see that you can't see yet? I mean, at the moment, not, not really. I mean, we, we, we've got so much video footage of these vehicles moving. We have a very good sense of where the build-up is thanks to satellite imagery. What I think really is going to come down for us is more, you know, what happens in those initial moments, how the, that attack will come. It, it, it does seem like over the last few days, things have been getting kind of closer and closer to something happening. It just feels like every day things just edge closer and closer and closer. And at any moment, it feels like a switch could be flicked and where, you know, the conflict will begin. But when it comes to sp specific kind of units and stuff, I mean, it, it is so much hardware there on the border at the moment. It's, it's like nothing is really indicative of anything beyond, you know, them being clearly prepared for an invasion. And, you know, they've got everything in place to do that. And it looks like, you know, over the last 24 hours, they've been moving units into positions to prepare for invasion. This is the future of journalism. And we better get ready and we better get used to it. It's not going to be Anderson Cooper forever. Thank you. The beautiful thing about the Internet is it really levels the playing field. I mean, I think anyone's a reporter. Anybody, whether they're citizen journalists, whatever you want to call them, they're taking information with their mobile phones. They're filming in Syria, Bahrain, you know, tear gas or whatever it might be, and they're uploading it to the internet. They're reporting that, you know? Everybody has a story, and somebody wants to listen to it. Not everybody wants to be a journalist. Not everybody wants to be a revolutionary. I'm here to help people tell their stories.
Now, Mr. Higgins, uh, we've been talking about open source intelligence from an angle that I would say I agree with is positive, documenting war crimes, potentially helping to bring cases against war criminals. But I wanted to flip it around and talk about it maybe in a more nefarious angle and get your take on this. If there is a large-scale invasion of Ukraine, the experts we've spoken to have said that sanctions may not be the most effective way to end such an invasion. It would probably be through supporting some type of asymmetric warfare with Ukraine and their guerrilla fighters. And then in turn, that would take people like the UK, the US, France, Germany, and other members of NATO and the EU to set up these supply chains. The US has went so far as to say that they will be delivering weapons, ammunitions, gas, lubricants, to Ukrainian resistance fighters through ground routes. So assuming this worst case scenario happens and we're praying and hoping that there is no war and reinvasion between Russia and Ukraine, could open sourced material be used in somewhat of a real time to both expose these supply chain routes, expose locations of resistance fighters, and then give that information to Russia so that they could then go about decapitating both the resistance and the supply chains. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's. I mean, it's partly down to what people on the ground are documenting. You know, as they see, you know, vehicles and stuff drive by, and what they're sharing online. Also, what the you know the troops and you know soldiers themselves are documenting. I mean, during the uh, 2014 uh, conflict in Ukraine, it was the Russian soldiers' own videos and photographs showing themselves in Ukraine in uniform. You know, with the separatists, that was evidence that Russia was involved with the conflict. I mean, they were they took videos and photographs of you know armored vehicles that they brought from Russia, and you know posing with their friends at kind of checkpoints in Ukraine, and you know that, and you know it was a vast amount of information. In fact, Russia passed a law to actually make that stuff illegal as an apparent response to what we were doing with it, They're exposing this stuff. You also have the fact that if you're someone who's, you know, filming stuff day to day and putting it online, you expose yourself by the fact that if you're sticking your camera out the window every day, we can figure out what your window is by geolocating those photographs because we can geolocate the position of the camera based off that or at least narrow it down to a building. So that, of course, becomes um, dangerous uh, as well. So there are a number of dangers that are present, but anyone can kind of use open source information and, you know, to, to do that kind of stuff. It's just down to what's available. And I think it, it, we've not really seen yet the public use of intelligence agencies using open source information and then presenting it as open source information. I've not really seen that happen. I mean, we have seen, unusually with the kind of current situation, a lot of information being shared by the US and UK and others of what they're seeing, but we aren't seeing the evidence behind that at the moment. And that's partly because, you know, some of that is based off classified information, but there is publicly available information that, you know, is, you know, usable. And I would actually hope to see more being used as this conflict continues, because there can be an, an analysis of this stuff done quickly by, you know, I'm sure by intelligence agencies that could actually be quite open and useful, be built on by organizations like Bellingcat who are working with open source information. So we're going to start with a meet. The meet over to you. Thanks so much. And Elliot, thanks for your time today. So what does, in your analysis, the Ukrainian defense look like right now along the frontier there with Russia and Belarus? And as it relates, uh, why are we 
automatically counting out Ukraine. Is there a way that they could strategically either uh, stave off some type of an attack or raise the cost to something that would be untenable for the Russians? Thank you. I, I think it really does depend on how well they're able to use things like anti-tank guided missiles in particular. To, I mean, it's been very interesting to see these javelin missiles being delivered by to Ukrainian forces. And I think it's how effective they're able to use those to counter the initial attacks. Whether or not that works is going to be quite key to how quickly this conflict is over. Because if they do get bogged down near the border with this kind of initial push of the evasion, it's going to be a problem. Because I don't think the Russians have the kind of depth of supply that will allow them to sustain campaign for that long before they start coming um, across quite a lot of supply issues. Because what we are seeing is whilst they're moving a lot of troops and support over to the border, the supply chains just don't seem to be there in the way that would suggest a kind of really sustained effort. And I, I kind of think, you know, the, the thing with Putin, everyone seems to think he's this amazing tactical genius, but he's basically someone who's surrounded himself with less yes men who are too scared to tell him any, any different. And it might be he's got it in his head that there can be this lightning strike that the Russian army can quickly kind of invade and, you know, grab Kiev. But I, I think he may be hopefully overestimating what they're actually able to do. As As for kind of how well the Ukrainian defences, and I, th I think it really comes down to how they've established a depth for those um, defences. And I think they've done a lot of work kind of around the separatist areas, but that you know they've got two kind of really major fronts, the kind of kind of northern borders and the borders with the separatist regions. And if they get pushed from both of those directions, I think it's going to be very hard for them to sustain kind of a defence. But it might be that they can, you know, draw enough blood to make it very difficult for the conflict to continue. But it, it's really hard to predict at this point. And it could be that, you know, by the end of this call, they've already got tanks driving into Kiev. It could be like really lightning fast, or it could be that we see months and months of conflict, conflict, even years of conflict. We are going to go, I believe the next person is Melanie, and then we'll go to Nas. Melanie, over to you. If we look past the noise, what are we actually looking for? I don't know whether I phrased that question correctly. So, you know, there's so much noise going on around the borders. Mm. And we also know from Mr. Putin that he used these type of things as a destruction. So if we were to look past the noise, so what what is it actually we're, we're missing here? So you know, I guess that's my question. Yeah, I mean, looking at what I'm seeing, it's. I mean, if he if this is kind of like he's doing a bit to get attention and you know get concessions, he's really committing to it because the kind of amount of resources and what's involved in kind of doing all this is quite significant. And they they're certainly the way they're acting, you know, stuff like you know they're preparing battle groups at the moment. We can see that there's all these vehicles that are now driving around with kind of Zeds painted on them to define the battle group that they're in, which is a bad sign. You know, those kind of little details and the way in which there's been this uptick in disinformation that they're producing kind of this, you know, this situation in Donetsk where they had, you know, you know, people kind of bust out and, you know, used as refugees, you know, so the Russian media could film them. You know, that's still a fairly significant effort. And it seems there's a lot of re resistance against that as well from the people in Donetsk about being used for that kind of stuff. So he's really 
really, you know, pushing things to the edge if he is kind of, you know, trying just to use this to get concessions. And I don't think it's working as well as he, he may have hoped, because I think he was rather hoping that Trump had undermined NATO so much that NATO would kind of crumble a bit under this. Whilst it seems more that it's kind of given those people in NATO who think that, you know, NATO has to be a kind of stand up against a Russia kind of alliance, uh, you know, more of a voice. And that's probably not he, what he was aiming for. I think at this stage, we are literally waiting for the first tanks to roll across the border. That There's very little more that they can do at this point to kind of prepare for the invasion. Whether on, I, I mean, there's the, um, I think in the Duma, they're having a debate about the recognition of the Nest People's Republic that continues on for a debate that they started this week. And I think that might be where we start seeing kind of maybe the first movements. I think maybe it was expected to happen on the 16th, but I think that's probably got pushed back because of, you know, it being announced by the US. So I, I, I really think it, what we'll be looking for is what happens on the 22nd with the debate in the Duma. You know, we've got Armed Forces Day coming up as well in Russia, so they might use that as the time they want to invade to make it even more symbolic. But yeah, I think... Next week, I think it's one of those things. If it doesn't happen next week, it might happen the following week. It's like it's kind of a ridiculous situation where you say it's 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 close to happening. It's kind of just you know it feels like a switch just has to be flipped by Putin himself, and then we'll be seeing it will happen. You know, Elliot, if I could follow up there, you're talking about the solidarity inside of NATO and the consensus around a potential sanctions package, and that there's still strength left in the alliance. And it's interesting hearing the UK government, Boris Johnson and others, saying if Russia acts any further, we'll cut down on money laundering in London of Russian businessmen. And it's kind of like this is a retaliatory measure. I mean, wouldn't how on earth couldn't that be something that we would do already? Uh, how could that be a retaliatory measure? I mean, if we believe that there's criminal activity being undertaken by Russian businessmen, isn't this something we should have addressed 20 years ago? It's maddening as well because we've been doing a lot of work on something called Scottish Limited Partnerships, which are being used as kind of legal vehicles in the UK to basically launder money from places like Russia and Ukraine. And that's been very well documented, and they just the government did nothing about it. They, they introduced these, these um, new beneficiary owner rules, where basically if a company has a beneficiary owner, it has to be kind of listed in kind of the paperwork and there was supposed to be these fines that were given to any companies who did it and we when this was introduced we looked at how many companies were breaking the law and realized that in like the first 30 days of this law coming into place there was like 12 million in fines that could be gathered from various companies who were breaking this law and uh, a politician we knew uh, an mp asked uh, the government you know what work is what's being done to recover this and the government said there's no mechanism in place to actually recover any of this money it's just the laws there but the mechanism isn't so it gives you a sense of how seriously they actually take this stuff and if they yeah i mean they should be doing this as you know their day-to-day law and order thing rather than keeping it for special occasions and what I mean, are they saying if Russia invades, they're going to let them keep being corrupt and doing that stuff in London? It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, we're seeing as well now, I think the US and UK said they'll um, cut off the ruble from the kind of US and um, UK currency system somehow. And I don't know how that's supposed to work, but I don't know if it's be enough. My issue is that if Russia does invade and they're able to grab Kiev very, very quickly, then that is just going to kind of make Putin seem like a huge hero in Russia, that he saved, you know, the poor ethnic Russians in Ukraine from the evil kind of 
Ukrainian ethnic cleansing government, and they'll have a big victory parade. And then every country, like you know, the, like you know, with the South Ossetia situation and Transnistria situation, where there's these, these kind of Russian-involved frozen conflicts, those countries are going to be very, very concerned. They're going to wonder if they're next because it would be clear that you know, a Russia can pull this off very quickly, and b that the you know the what the West tried to do to stop it from happening didn't work. So does that then mean that the response from the EU and UK and US has to be even more stringent? And if it's not, will Putin just see that as a sign that he can keep on doing this? So it's it's not a great situation. Well, if they do finally crack down on the Russian business activity in London, as they, again, should have done for decades, maybe they'll strip Abramovich's Premier League titles like they did for Juventus after the referee uh, match fixing. A reminder, our guest here is also an author of We Are Bellingcat. You can get it if you're in the UK or US. So we will go to Charlie for our last question. Then we'll probably kick it over to Mr. Elliot Higgins. What a great last name for final thoughts. Charlie, over to you. In terms of like technologies like deep fake, is that a huge concern for you in the future? Like, Do you think platforms like TikTok could be fully in control of some adversary or a government and there would be a scenario that you couldn't tell if like the videos that you have available are deep fakes or uh, real videos? So yeah, I would appreciate if you could explain more about these topics. Thanks. Yeah, with um, deep fakes, the way we work, we're always kind of triangulating information. So if you have a deep fake video of you know someone giving a speech, we'll look for the original footage of the speech and see if we can find that moment in the speech. And if we can't, we know there's something up. Currently, the deep fakes aren't really sophisticated enough to really fool that process, but they are sophisticated enough to you know fool a Twitter user to retweet it. And that's kind of the problem. It's great that you can kind of verify and fact check something, but if you can't do that quicker than someone can retweet something, that information is going to get out there. So that I think is where a lot of you know things fall down. It's, it's kind of, I think one thing we try and do with Bellingcat is show people how to do this kind of analysis. So it's not down to us catching this stuff before it gets out there in the open and gets all over the place. But unfortunately, that's just the nature of the internet, how quickly this misinformation spreads. But if you focus on it as evidence, then that can be kind of one way to address that in the long term. As um, I think really what you might see if it does get to the point where it's so sophisticated and such a problem that you see deep fakes everywhere, that you'll see social media companies maybe introducing something into the way that you know their, their software handles these videos that may be used to detect deep fakes. And then you'll end up with a kind of arm race between the deep fakers and deep fake detectors. We aren't at that point first, but I can envision that happening at some point. Thank you very much, Charlie. So before you leave us, I'm wondering if you have any last thoughts. I would say that, you know, with this, the escalation that's happening in Russia, and if by the time the podcast is out, there is this conflict that's ongoing. When you're dealing with disinformation, especially when it comes from Russia, it's not as sophisticated as you may have been led to think. Like the examples I gave before, it could be they forget to take metadata out of a video they're sharing. It's a very easy thing to check. I've time and time again told people that if the Russian Ministry of Defense give a press conference and they present any sort of evidence, you can fact check that yourself. If they present satellite imagery, you can look at Google Earth imagery and other references to actually see if they're telling the truth. And, you know, we show people how to do this on Banning Cat. So if you want to get involved, it's usually not as hard as you may imagine it to be. And we've uh, told you how to get involved on the website with resources and guides and case studies so you can learn how to do it yourself. So I strongly encourage people to give it a go because you might may find it surprisingly enjoyable when you do do it. 
That's all we have for you today from our conversation with Elliot. Again, this episode, like all of our episodes, was edited down from a much longer live conversation with people from around the world coming together to ask our guests the questions. If you want more information about how to join us, past episodes, or to sign up for our very special email newsletter, which will give you our best of directly to your inbox twice per month, please visit our website, pm101.live. But today we're also bringing you part of a conversation we had with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs from California. She sits on the House Foreign Affairs and Armed Services Committees, and she just came back from Brussels where she and other members of Congress were talking to our European allies. We talked to her about what it's like in Congress as well as how her constituents feel about foreign policy. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. What's your current understanding of the Russian troop posture based on the latest information that you've got in in congressional briefings? There are about 130,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's northern, southern, and eastern borders. Vladimir Putin did announce that they would be going back into their barracks. In fact, that has not been the case. They have actually sent something like probably 7,000 more troops to the border this evening. Oh, wow. Uh, so they're building up still. That is that is interesting. Before we get into more of the specifics on the ground, for people who maybe aren't aware of what CODELs are and your trip overseas, could you just describe what kind of meetings you had when you were in Kiev and Brussels? Were you meeting with members of the parliament? Were you meeting with military officials? And not only that, what was the feeling from these meetings? Was it a unified front from our European allies? Or were you getting conflicting messages from different people you were meeting with? It's a great question. I feel like so much of what we do in Congress is kind of a mystery to people. In Brussels, we met with our counterparts in the EU parliament. We met with NATO, Deputy Secretary General, with some of the permanent representatives to NATO from the Baltic countries. In Kiev, we met with President Zelensky, the ministers of defense and foreign affairs, with parliamentarians. What I found was that all of our allies in NATO and the EU were speaking with one voice uh, in the rooms that mattered. We're very clear that we are all united in standing up against Russian aggression, and we're willing to, to do what we needed to do to make sure there were severe consequences if Vladimir Putin decided to invade. When you were meeting with President Zelensky, what was the message that he was portraying, and what did he want you to specifically, to bring back to the United States and speak to? President Zelensky is very concerned about the economic consequences of all of this talk of invasion. Concerned that Vladimir Putin wouldn't necessarily even need to invade to destabilize the country if their economy collapses. What he really was asking us for was economic support, to make sure that we were not only providing the military assistance that they were requesting, but also economic support so that their economy doesn't collapse even as you have people taking out more cash than normal and, you know, doing precautions in case there's an invasion. This type of economic assistance harkens me back to when I was working for the governor of Puerto Rico. We had to go through a Republican Congress, but they were very concerned about corruption controls even after Hurricane Maria devastated the island and thousands of U.S. citizens were dying. Is there a way to provide 
robust economic support to a country that has massive corruption? I think something that we should do with our allies and partners, in addition to the the military assistance and this economic guarantees, uh, is actually work on providing a broader package of anti-corruption and governance support to the country. I think will be incredibly important to do that moving forward for exactly the reasons that you said. Um, And also because we know that to, to keep Ukraine strong and secure, we need them to have a strong and stable democratic government, which means we need to address some of these underlying issues that, that they just haven't fully addressed yet. If there is an invasion right now, the U.S. Senate is negotiating uh, the mother of all sanctions bill or whatever you want to call it, but it's a, a wide ranging and sprawling sanctions bill. And I'm wondering, once Russia already invades, what type of effect would these sanctions have? And for Americans who maybe aren't aware of foreign policy that much, would they be worth it? So what we want is to have a diplomatic off-ramp, to have a diplomatic resolution to this crisis. But part of how we get that diplomatic resolution is actually to make clear to Putin what the costs would be if he chooses the other option to incentivize him making some sort of deal, some sort of compromise so that we can have a diplomatic off-ramp. So so the sanctions are incredibly important for this deterrent effect. And I think that it's important that we all speak in one voice, us in the United States, uh, our partners in the EU about these sanctions so that he does not have any ability to miscalculate uh, and decide that it might be less costly for him to invade than what he would have to give up in a diplomatic settlement. So just like you said there, Sarah, if we could get the Europeans to come along and put restrictions on these gas exports, there would be, of course, a big supply shortage in Europe who rely on Russian gas exports. So how is the U.S. government approaching this? Are we working with some natural gas exporters like Qatar? Are we putting in place some possible remedies to offset the supply shortage? It's definitely something that we have been talking about and thinking about and creating contingency plans for working with partners to make sure that there will be uh, enough LNG and gas, especially because we know for Europe, in the winter, that is incredibly important. So it's definitely something that we're working on. And and I think that were it to come to that, that us with our partners would have the contingencies in place to make sure that the Europeans and the people in the, the countries that rely on this gas to stay warm this winter won't be too affected. So just to get back to the domestic aspect of things. You mentioned President Biden in his speech. I thought that this was the best presidential speech we have seen in at least five years, and it came at the most critical time, arguably. So he did a fantastic job, but he was forthright with the American people. If we do get in concert with our European allies and we do begin to sanction Nord Stream 2 and other gas and energy exports from Russia, it will have a price to pay for United States citizens, for citizens in your district, the cost of gas at the pump will go up. And that's especially concerning considering the rates of inflation and how gas prices were already high earlier in the year. So are your constituents ready to pay more at the pump for a country in Ukraine that maybe they don't really follow every day in the news and they aren't up to date on 
Look, I think that President Biden was exactly right in having an honest and forthright conversation with the American people about what could be in store for us. There is a potential, even without the sanctions, for this invasion to increase the price of gas. And we're working on creative ways to try and mitigate those impacts. I'm very fortunate to represent a proud military community here in San Diego. And so my constituents know better than most how important these world and global issues are for our security here in the United States. So have you been getting any constituents correspondence? You said you're in a military district, obviously, out in beautiful San Diego. But when you're in discussions with the members of the public in your district that you represent, what is their resolve? Are are they pushing for the U.S. to do more, pushing for us to maybe do what Tucker Carlson wants and decide with Russia? What is the feel of the normal everyday citizens in your district? I think that there has been a lot of consternation about what it will mean for our military community. And so I want to say very clearly, as the president has, that we are not sending American troops to Ukraine. That's not something that's being discussed. So all of the troop movements that you're hearing about in the news are actually us sending troops to our NATO allies in the East, like Poland and Romania, that we already have a a treaty alliance with uh, to defend them, to show that our commitment to NATO is ironclad. So I want to flip that into your conversations with members of Congress. And a lot of people maybe don't realize, but you folks have a lot of issues that you need to focus on. My boss was an agriculture guy and trade guy, but uh, bless his heart, even though I now disagree with like 90% of the policies he stood for, he didn't know anything about foreign affairs. And the way that he would get information would be to go and discuss foreign affairs with his fellow members of Congress at the lunch table, at the bar, uh, wherever they may be. So I'm wondering, in your conversations, you're on the Foreign Affairs Committee. You've been a foreign policy advisor for the Clinton campaign. This is clearly an issue where you have some expertise. When you're discussing this issue with other members of Congress, what kind of uh, questions are they asking? And are they showing similar resolve to the resolve that your constituents are, sh- are showing to you? Most members of Congress came from local and state government. So they were dealing with a lot of the issues that we work on in Congress, but not necessarily foreign policy. And I think that that is a big reason why Congress has historically abdicated our responsibility on issues of war and peace and kind of let the executive branch take the lead. And I'm very glad to say that under the leadership of Chairman Meeks of the Foreign Affairs Committee and and of Speaker Pelosi, uh, this Congress has done a very good job of reasserting our role in these really important issues and, you know, making sure that we are doing our constitutional duty, uh, of which Congress is the one who decides whether we go to war or not, not the executive branch. So, Sarah, you've emphasized in this conversation a lot of the places where there is a consensus, where there's unity, whether that's inside the U.S. Congress, in the American public, or even within some of our alliances. But there do seem to be some cracks, right? Of course, there's been a lot of focus on Germany's role. We know that they've been criticized for blocking the East German DDR-made howitzers from being transported from Estonia into Ukraine. But also yesterday, we saw that Israel 
are blocking Iron Dome components from being sent to Ukraine as well. These are two countries that have relations with Moscow that are sensitive. With Israel, it's a very close diplomatic relationship with the Kremlin. For Germany, it's the commercial aspect. Uh, how should we think about these apparent cracks in our alliance system? Are you concerned that these countries are not part of the same consensus that we're trying to build on this issue? I think it's important to remember that everyone has their own domestic politics to deal with when it comes to this crisis. And much of what we're hearing and seeing in public is actually people catering to their own domestic politics. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that there are very many different dynamics at play. And for instance, on the Iron Dome and and the other weapons you were talking about, it's not necessarily an ideological difference. Sometimes it's that there's very sensitive technology that you wouldn't want to get in the wrong hands, that maybe you wouldn't want Russia to get access to if they were to invade and take over Ukraine or parts of the Ukrainian military. So our first question is going to come from all the way over in the UK from Oxford and Andy Lowry. Andy, over to you. Uh, thank you, uh, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Congresswoman. I wonder, could we get your thoughts on some of Russia's claims from the other side of the table? For instance, they're accusing NATO of aggression. Do you see any NATO aggression? Is there any justification to Russia's fears in this? Or is that just internal messaging in their attempt to justify their build-up? Many thanks. There is no NATO aggression towards Russia. Uh, what Vladimir Putin is trying to claim is that NATO is putting missiles in Ukraine. There is not and nor has there ever been a, a plan or uh, any truth to that, uh, that there would be NATO missiles or U.S. missiles in Ukraine. Um, in fact, we're being very clear to say that we're not going to be sending U.S. troops into Ukraine um, because we're trying to be very clear that this is just a defensive posture, um, and that it has been Vladimir Putin who has escalated this crisis and been aggressive. Now, does that mean there are no security concerns? No, of course not. Uh, both sides have security concerns, and that's actually what is we're trying to address in these negotiations. And as a potential diplomatic off-ramp here is to try and come up with some sort of mutual uh, agreement that alleviates both sides' security concerns. So, Congresswoman, we obviously have to thank you. But before you go, um, and, and having been so generous with your time, we, we want to ask you some last thoughts. It could be about the issue. It could be about maybe a newfound bipartisan nature in Congress after the terrorist attack on January 6th. Um, it could be just about being young in Congress. It could be positive, negative, or somewhere in between. I think I have two things I want to leave folks with. The first is that the most important thing we can do for our national security is to work on our democracy here at home, um, to make sure that we're coming back together and not letting the divisions get in the way of progress. And so we need to work on our democracy. We need to invest in our democracy in growing our economy in an equitable way. That is the most important thing that we can do to maintain our leadership and our national security. Uh, and the second is that we are facing a lot of challenges right now, and we need all of the good ideas around to be able to solve them. 
And so I hope that no one listening thinks that they're too young to make a difference or that their voice doesn't matter because the opposite is true. We need you. We need your ideas. We need your creativity. Uh, We need your voice now more than ever. It's the only way we're going to get out of this moment and move towards a future where all of us uh, can thrive and build the future that we all deserve. That is all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat, to Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, to our audience for their questions, and especially to you for being here. Please take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now to make sure you don't miss our next episode coming out this Friday with Charles C.W. Cook, who's a senior writer at the National Review, an American conservative magazine. We host voices and welcome audience questions from across the political spectrum. To find out how to join us live, hear past episodes, or sign up for our very special newsletter, please visit our website, pm101.live. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team. Thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. 